Butaz Network. Hi, this is Devin Turak with the Free Buddhist Network. Today we bring you another episode of Hall of Giants. We hope you enjoy the show. Episode 3 of Hall of Giants. My name is Ian Clark, and I have the pleasure tonight of being joined by Mr. Tim Kask. Tim, how are you tonight? Um, all things considered, I'm doing good. Awesome. Doing that's, good. that's good to hear. So we're, we're going to talk about, obviously, your, your great career within gaming and, and things like that, but um, maybe we'll start out. You're, you're going to tell me a story. You're, uh, you're teaching now. And, no, uh, I was. I'm, I'm retired now. No, but I, I'm sorry. Yes, you are. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, I, did a guest, I did a guest talk today for a high school in Wisconsin. And it was a guest talk. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was a guest speaker, lecturer, whatever. It was mainly a big Q&A <clears throat> because it was a design class. And so I was instruct, you know, I was giving them what I felt they had to do to make a successful design. And they, of course, I was warned that everybody that talks to this particular class gets asked did you know Gary Gygax you know because he is a local legend in that part of Wisconsin and uh, I was describing how I got hired I got hired well I I met Gary over the phone and in late 73 we had a phone conversation a phone friendship only until uh, Gen Con in 74 in August so that was the first time we met face to face and um, he had Con me into going to this con to try out this new game of his. Oh, come on up. You'll enjoy it. You'll have a good time because I'd never been to a game con. And first time in, I went and it was like it was like a scene out of a Monty Python movie with the sun rising. And you go, wow, 400 guys that all play games. I'd never known there were more than eight, you know. And yeah. so um, he, I, I played a couple of games at D&D. The first one didn't last 20 minutes and we were all dead. And the second <laughs> one, my dwarf character ended up lord of a of a domain and and just all these incredible and i go oh this game's pretty cool so i bought a copy and i took it back to teach uh to play at college and it took me three weeks to slog through the three original books so the ne- <laughs> next time i talked to gary i told him i said gary these rules suck <laughs> i had i had once at least one student completely in shock. Well, this kid's head exploded. He couldn't believe that somebody told the great Gary Gygax that his rules sucked. And what, what I meant was that they, were, they weren't written well. And if anybody's ever read the first three books, they sucked. They were stodgy. They were, they, they, you just had to wade through them. And, um, and, and I really don't blame Gary because... He was writing rules for a game type that had never existed before right. and trying to explain how to do this totally new thing. And he, when I told him that, he said, oh, you can do better? I said, yeah. I said, I've been working on a college newspaper. I've been working on a college yearbook. I said, hey, I'm a journalism student for Christ's sake. Yeah, I can do better. So he said, well, then, and so we talked about his plans to make strategic review grander, how the company needed somebody with the actual 
editing skills, you know, learned editing skills. And so I went back to college. I specialized the last year in my major. I, I got a special, I did a specialized major that enabled me to hop across disciplines and do some photography and do some photo stuff, you know, and do some journalism. And so I basically prepared myself for the job, graduated college, went up and went to work. But I got my job because I told him, yeah, you, your rules suck. Yeah, I can do a better job. You think you can? Okay, come to work. And I, I did, and I did. So the rest was history. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, that, poor, that poor young man's head nearly exploded. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, but but yeah. again, I had a relationship with him. Um, when I first met Gary, it was over the telephone. It was on a late, late on a Sunday night back when you had to pay attention to when you were calling long distance because it cost a lot of money. Right. And the first call ended up being like an hour and 40 minutes long. We discovered we were like brothers with different mothers. We had about two thirds or three quarters of what became Appendix N in common. Oh, wow. OK. So, you know, th that was it. I, I grokked it. You know, I understood where he was coming from because I'd read all the same books. So we became friends and, you know, the rest just took place. You know, it's one of those things. Um, so when I, when I told him, it wasn't like I was a stranger. Hi, your rules suck. <laughs> right. it, it was, you know, after we built up a rapport and I read him and I finally got ready to, and I, you know, and he said, what's taking you so long? I said, these rules suck. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't make heads or tails out of them. It took me three weeks. I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent gamer. And, and I told him, I said, if it takes me three weeks, this isn't my ego speaking. If it takes me three weeks, I got to figure there's people out there that throw their hands up in the air after 10 days. Yeah. So that led to a job. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty. <laughs> got it done. Well, so, uh, all right. So we'll definitely jump well, in. Gary, Gary valued our honesty. You try to blow smoke up Gary's butt, he would have nothing about, wouldn't have it. You, you didn't blow smoke up Gary's butt. Uh-uh. You know, he, he appreciated honesty and forthrightness. Got us both in trouble a few times. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's the way it was. Uh all right, I want to I want to step back a little bit before that and, and uh, just kind of get a little bit of a of an idea of your background. Uh, born and raised in Illinois, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quad Cities, Illinois, Moline to be precise. Okay. Um, it's uh, the only place in the Mississippi River that runs east and west. Oh, For really? For about forty miles, it runs east and west. I was very confused growing up <laughs> because where I grew up, Iowa was north. Yeah. Now, if you look at the map. Iowa is west of Illinois, <laughs> right. except where I grew up. And taking uh, cruises into the sunset on the Mississippi River, I I talk about taking a sunset cruise on the Mississippi. <laughs> People go, what, you got a stiff neck from looking out the side? And I go, no, we sailed into the sunset because of where I live. And um, I started playing war games in sixth grade. And I was born in 49, so that makes it 62 or 63, D-Day, very shortly after it came out. And uh, I played with one guy, uh, sixth and seventh grade. And then after eighth grade, he went on to Catholic school. I went on to public school and I didn't play anymore for quite a while. But that's where I, that's where I first got my taste of it. 
and loved it and thought it was fascinating. And while I was in service, I told my other buddy about this weird kind of games we used to play and he was interested. And so we went and ordered at the local little bookstore. We got our catalog out and there in the back were some Avalon Hill games. We gave her a list of three or four and we got the worst one out of the box. <laughs> we ended up getting 1914. Now that's, that's one of the, uh, next to Terrible Swift Sword, that's probably one of the longest, most cut and dried game um, that, that there was. And, and yet we, we played the hell out of it uh, in service. Took the whole weekend to play. We'd set up on Friday night and played uh, Sunday night or Monday morning just before muster. And, uh, you know, it took the whole weekend to play. the. And I mean, it took the whole damn weekend. We didn't sleep. We, we just took over the laundry room in the barracks. And, you know, the guys knew that, well, they're in there this weekend. Okay. <laughs> right. No, no playing cards at that table. Ed <laughs> and I had it. And so uh, despite it being that game, it, that renewed my interest. And one thing led to another and, you know, junior college and then college and Gary and all those things. But I, I started when I was 12, 11 or 12, 12 or 13, because I'm, yeah, 49, it was 62 or 60, it was a winter, I think, in 62, 63. We had, we had conned our parents into three. We were going to be spending three weekends, the next three weekends on a science project. <laughs> <laughs> and we finished it on Saturday, the first Saturday. So now we had five more days that our parents, but, you know, we, we were cool. We, yeah, we're working on a science project. No? <laughs> right. we're, we were playing war games in Mike Gingler's bedroom. <laughs> That's awesome. And so we got I, an A on the science project, too. So win-win. Oh, <laughs> yeah, win-win. Uh, so I'm curious about the kind of the, the juxtaposition there. You, you know, you're talking about you being in the service. You were in the Navy. and uh, But having still having an interest in war games, I, I find that interesting, being in the service. And, you know, obviously um, – and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you served in Vietnam. So, I mean, was there any, uh, you know, being close to it? Was there uh, – what no. was the – no, um, little known fact, while I, while I was still in at TSR, just about every boomer submarine in the both the gold and the blue fleets on the East Coast had a set of D&D books that stayed on the boat because every one of those boats had two crews. They go out for 30 days and come back in. They rotate crews, go out for 30 days. So I found out that not only were all the boomer submarines that are tracking the Soviet submarines, not only are they all playing D&D, they, they played underneath Camp David. They played underneath uh, White Mountain out in Colorado. Um, there were lots of service guys that played war games and even a lot that played ended up playing D&D. Um, I didn't I was not a I was not a ground pounder. All right. So I didn't have any animus, you know, or any squeamishness about it. I got exposed to some action a couple, three times um, that I could have lived with. <laughs> I could have done without. Sure. Um, but even that I've always played. I've, I've played all kinds of games and, and I look at them as problem solving. Some are more complex than others. Um, my mother was a game bug. And she, we, you know, I started playing Candyland when I was old enough to tell the colors apart. And we played all the, the old family games. And she had 
home versions of Jeopardy and Password. And I mean, we did my mom and, and that's where I got my bug, just loved to play games, any kind of games. Um, we get together for family things at, at the holidays. There was always a Rummy Royal game somewhere in the corner. They take over a table, you know, something was always. So I came from a gaming, uh, a traditional gaming background. The fact that I veered off was a result of my fascination with military history. Um, there was a point in time before I got into high school that I had read every nonfiction military history book our library had. And, and that's the downtown library. It was a fair sized library, town of 40,000 people. We had a pretty good, we, we had a Carnegie library and it was a pretty good library. And I read the whole section. Uh, I just went on a tear and read military nonfiction. So that fed my military history Jones and uh, lent me down that way. And I, gee golly, go figure, I ended up a history teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, and with all that reading, is that, is that what sparked the, the interest in writing? You did, you studied journalism. So, I mean, was that, well, was that yeah, hand in hand? I figured out, I, I didn't figure it out in high school. I figured it out when I came back, when I got out and I went back to junior high, I figured out that writing's just read, just talking on paper. And I already knew I was a good talker because I competed in forensics competitions and debate and original dissertation and news reading. And, you know, I, and I, by that time I knew how to use my voice because I was taught in ninth grade, how to use, I was in plays in the ninth grade. And so I had a teacher that taught me how to use my diaphragm. And unfortunately I haven't figured out how to turn it off since. <laughs> um, so, um, I don't know. Where were we going with that? I forgot. Just writing and, and. Oh, yeah. Writing is just talking on paper. And when I figured in that, when that clicked in my head, there it was. And I've been told I'm a, I can I can be a pretty good writer when I when I'm inspired. Um, and. Uh, I'm a very eloquent talker. When I choose to be. So it's kind of natural that talking on paper is writing. Um, so, that, you know, that's kind of how I got to it. Um, when I was with TSR, I had to edit a lot of stuff and I learned to edit it in the author's voice. I, I didn't use a five syllable word in an article that had nothing bigger than a three syllable word in it because it would have not rung true. So right. I, learned, I learned to write in other people's voices um, and so that they didn't know. And I, I frequently have, wow, wow, man, that's I, you know, they, they comment about how pumped they were when they saw their article in, in, in the actual, you know, published magazine. And I think to myself, yeah, and uh, most of them knew that I'd made them look better. A couple of them thought they were that good to begin with. <laughs> they weren't. But I'm not going to burst their bubble, you know. Um, I was very fortunate in the time that I was doing Little Wars and Dragon. I was the only market for the kinds of things that those two magazines were doing. Um, in the early 80s, early and mid 80s, when um, the History Channel and the Military Channel were doing all the documentaries, half the talking heads were guys that had written articles for my magazine when they were in, still in college. Um, and and um, I was the only place where they could write a historical, you know, article about their favorite thingy or whatever. And 
even more on the other side, I was the only market for art. And so I was extremely lucky in that I discovered a whole lot of people, many of whom ended up working for TSR full time. I'd find them, TSR would hire them, and then I couldn't use them anymore. <laughs> well, I was a different division. If I used them, I had to pay, you know, and no, yeah. it's fine. There's there's plenty more out there that don't work for TSR that do great stuff. So so a lot of a lot of artists got their their uh breakout. And I was I was just delighted to be able to provide that, you know. Hey, this guy draws neat pictures, check it out. Right, and, right. You know, uh and you know, you look at the ones that ended up going on working their diesel and 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 uh Jeff D and um um Phil Folio, all those guys, uh Trampier, all those guys worked for me first. And then TSR ended up hiring them. But you know, they, they got their exposure through me. And and I that was something I was real glad I was real glad to do, and I was very uh very proud of the fact that I had given so many good artists a shot at recognition and being seen and getting other commissions and what have you. So uh it was it was a fun time. I got to turn people on to new art, I got to turn people on to new games, uh new people writing about them, and that's all Gary and I wanted to do with Dragon Magazine was just tell people about good games didn't matter who made them you know and that's something that when i was there we we you we were the farthest thing from a house organ that you could possibly be because gary and i both believed that if we did what we did with the magazine we were going to grow the hobby because the rising tide lifts all boats right right and so if we gave this guy a plug and he did well and was able to publish another good game later and you know and vice and that stuff mushroom and snowball and so uh we, we were very successful in that regard i i was like a little kid going hey check this out it's a cool game and i was fairly good at picking games that i that would be broadly successful or broadly popular i i had a in fact uh one of the people involved in the talk I did today, her husband pointed out that she ought to ask how I did that because I was very good back in the day of finding good games. I'm very good at that. And I just had the conceit that I had a, every man's taste. And then if I liked it, a bunch of other people probably would too. And so sure. that was my sole criterion of what went in the magazine. Hey, that's a pretty cool game. Let's put an article or two in there about that. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. And, we, and again, we didn't care who was selling the game. We were we cared that there were games selling. Right, right. Yeah. So let's we, we grew the hobby. We grew the hell out of the hobby. Oh, for sure. And then we ended up taking it over. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, a whole story about how Origins came to be. Oh, there's there's a there's a wicked story there. Origins came to be because Gen Con was too big. And then we went to Origins and we sold more tickets to our events than they sold to all of their events. And they didn't like us for that at all. <laughs> those damn fantasy people, those damn <laughs> dragon people. You know, but we we were taking over the industry. So you you talked about your you know your discussion with uh, with Gary Gygax on the phone. You guys become friends, and then uh, eventually it leads to you being the 
historically and famously the very first full-time TSR employee. Yes. That's so, a princely sum of $100 per week. <laughs> and happy to have it probably at the time, oh, right? Just, yeah, just out well, of college, right? Getting paid money to do gaming? Oh, yeah, yes. Doesn't get any better than that. They pinch me. Am I dead? <laughs> this is heaven. So now it's been reported, I've read it in various sources, other books and things like that, that, that Blackmore was actually the, your first assignment. Is that accurate? Yeah, that was my first project. Yep. Edit, editing Blackmore. Yeah. Yep. Well, actually, <laughs> editing is too nice a word. Ma making a silk purse out of a sow's ear is what I did with Blackmore. It yeah, was, well, and I've I've read that that Arneson obviously brilliant with games and things, but the actual getting the rules in a comprehensive man you know manner was. I literally not had a I literally had a peach basket full of sheets of paper with notes on them, and from that I had to weave that all together into what I ended up weaving it into, and then he had a shed hissy when we uh, put the uh, uh, the the temple in there that wasn't his. Oh, OK. Yeah. Or, you know, and that was Steve Marsh. This, or no, it was the Sahagan. I put the Sahagan in there. More aquatic things. Charneson had a shit hissy because it was not his creation in his Temple of the Frog. Yeah, da, 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 da. We saw it as an absolute link. I mean, yeah, let's we're going to have a, a frog temple. Let's give him some mer people, you know. And uh, he had a he had a heart attack. He disavowed the book. Uh, almost from the day it was published, and uh, that was his problem. Yeah, and you you touched on uh, the dragon and things like that, uh, and you were doing a lot of a lot of periodicals and things like that. What were were, were there some other um, what were some other things you remember from the early days for uh, for working on? Well, I'm uh, I worked on Blackmore, demigods, demigods and heroes. Um, Eldritch Wizardry, Swords and Spells. I edited all those. Those were all of the OD&D books that comprised. Now we have it. We finally have it all put together. Um, I sat down literally for an entire week in Gary's office. Every wall had cork boards up on it. And we cut up six or seven copies of the brown box set. And no phone calls that entire week unless it was our wives. <laughs> we were both married and smart enough to say that. <laughs> and when that week, actually it was, I think it was six days or seven even. When that period was done, basic, advanced, they were both, okay, this is going to be in this, this is going to be in that. Then they went on to other people. After the first book of the advanced came back from uh, Mike Carr's first editing job, Gary asked me, and I felt real guilty about it, to go over it that weekend and, you know, check up on what Mike did. I told him about it a few years ago, and he was cool with it. I'd always been kind of guilty. But I took it home, read it over, and said, yeah, it's a good job. No problem. And that was the last I had to do, except as a playtester with anything of, with hobbies. I was strictly periodicals from that point on. I had so much stuff going on in my own division that I was plenty busy. Between putting together, you know, at the time, two magazines, which we ended up running into one and then becoming a monthly, which, you know, we were doing one a month anyway. So that wasn't that my big a deal, except the gear shift change that we had to do from historical to fantasy. But now we no longer had to do that. Um, and uh, 
I, I had nothing to do except I would play test. But I was periodicals. I drew my wages out of periodicals. You know, we ran periodicals as, a, as its own division uh, as part of TSR. But it was my division. I was the vice president in charge of periodicals. So it was my own little fiefdom. Um, and uh, from that point forward, I, I didn't have much to do except see it when it came out. Or, you know, occasionally do a play test in a module or something like that. And that was fine. That's I, I didn't get hired to be a game editor. I got hired to be a magazine editor. That, that was our goal. And uh, I, I think we uh, we put it through the goalposts. Yeah, for sure. I, I was wondering about that, how much playtesting, you know, still obviously a, a burgeoning a young company and, and, and building. So it, it probably, to me at least, it would feel like it would be all hands on deck when it came to, to trying out new games or modules and things like that. Oh, yeah. When, well, when there was only six or eight of us, you know, that, that were, you know, affiliated with the company, there are a couple of uh, young guys from the area that, that played, we had played with Gary in that, and they were sometimes available for playtesting. But yeah, a lot of our playtest sessions was uh, T TSR staff. <laughs> yeah, and because uh, we needed we needed warm bodies, uh, we needed. Uh, I, that's one of the things that I I stress today in this lecture is uh, if you're going to design a game, playtest the hell out of it before you think it's finished, because those other people will find holes that you'd never envisioned. Um. I, I give a classic example, you know, it's it's made up, but um, no, nobody ever thought about putting a levitation spell on an Assyrian chariot and, you know, and, and making like Helios. No, can't do that. You know, no, you can't. Um, there used to be errata sheets used to come out with every game. Now, at first, they were just something small that got stuffed in there because there were typos. Or we dropped a word, or we dropped a line. But errata sheets started to become much more uh, than that because you can't make. I was once asked, um, "How do you make a, a, a foolproof set of rules?" You can't. Fools are too ingenious. <laughs> They'll try something that you never thought to try, never even thought of in playtesting. You can playtest a game for six months. And as soon as you give it to a bunch of different people, they'll come up with something you never foresaw. <laughs> and so you got to say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> or if you're going to do that, you got to do it this way, you know. Um, and so uh, that was just part that was part and parcel of game publishing back then. Um, writing hurt on the game. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. We did a lot of that. No, you can't do that. But that was part of the that was part of the, what you did back then. Sure. Now you you touched on a little bit helping out with the uh, the split when uh, Dungeons and Dragons went on and then Advanced Dungeons and Dragons now you know known as First Edition. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious about that. What because you mentioned on what's going to go and what I just uh, if you would just talk a little bit about the process of of splitting the two. Well, um, basic basic was a reaction to the Satanic Panic bullshit that was going on, and you know demon worship and all this crap. So Gary decided, okay, we'll take out demons, we'll take out devils, we'll sanitize it. You can still go kill things and take their stuff, but we'll take out those objectionable parts. We'll take out any hint of sexuality and 
that became basic. Here's a cleaned up, sanitized version of, all right, we don't go into devils. We don't go into demons. You know, you're not going to sell your soul, you know, whatever, because it was aimed at younger players, beginning players. We didn't want to turn them off. And we didn't want their moms burning their books. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that was a sanitized, boiled down version. That was D&D light. Only went up to what? Fourth level, fifth level? I think yeah. that's all. Yeah, it didn't go up very far. So that was D&D light. And AD&D was the, the, the whole thing. It was, it was the whole banana. And uh, everything went in that and more. Obviously, we added a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff went into AD&D that we would have liked to have got into original and couldn't. You know, it's like running a running grocery list. You know, what do we need? What do you, what what do we forget? What do we forget? <laughs> sure, <laughs> now, sure. Now we can get all these things in here. Uh, and so that's what we did. Um, the only argument I won in that whole series of uh, modifications was on Magic Missile. Magic Missile always hits now. <laughs> yes, yep. It always hits. Doesn't hit for much, but hey, it's enough to get that bugger with only one hit point left you know, <laughs> right. take him out um the original magic missile was like calling in a mortar barrage if it hit it was like a fireball damn near you know six six d6 worth of damage <laughs> over a big radius you know it's like calling in a mortar strike or it missed all together and there <laughs> went your spell there yeah. went the one spell that you had as a low-level wizard was just wasted. Right. So I, oh, I, I argued all week on that, and he finally gave in. <laughs> finally gave in. Now the magic users have a spell that works. Yeah. You know, maybe you're only going to use it to start the campfire. So what? <laughs> yeah, it works. It you're not going to miss. <laughs> it always works. So um, uh. we didn't. We, there's one thing that we didn't take. Uh, we didn't put in and. It was an area that we'd been going towards, and that was doing your own spell research. Oh, okay. In the early days, DMs allowed you, you know, I, Gary did, I did, lots of people did. They allowed you to research new spells. For one thing, we hadn't had 700 spells published yet. Right. And so uh, we, we allowed that early on, but that was purposely left out of AD&D and only kind of glossed over with some generalized in the Dungeon Master's Guide, I think there was some generalized stuff about researching spells and that. But uh, originally, we were going to go a lot deeper into it and how you do it and figuring out charts for how much it ought to cost. And we said, that's a can of worms we don't need to open. We'll leave it up to the DM. If he opens a can, he can't blame us. <laughs> and so we, we let that one go. But that's what we did. We sat down and we went, we literally went through the books page by page, made notes. Like I said, we cut them up. Stuff on this side of the room was ended up in AD&D, and stuff on that side of the room ended up in Basic. And uh, we modified on the spot. You know, yeah, I've been meaning to change this. Okay, up on the wall. And uh, we, I midwifed first edition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the best way to put it. I midwifed. I helped in the delivery. <laughs> right. <laughs> Boy, I just I'm just picturing a lot of a lot of collectors and, and old school gamers just gasping at the thought of you guys cutting up a bunch of the original. Oh, every <laughs> time I tell that story, I I, t I told that you know of, of a collectors group called the Acam. I don't. They look. Some people call it Acium. 
Oh, it's okay. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, in Greek, that's supposed to be a cam. There's okay. no soft C in Greek. I, I told them that the first year that they took me to dinner. <laughs> I pointed out that they're pronouncing their name wrong. <laughs> and they love me for it. Go figure. <laughs> so I told that story the first night, uh, the first time they took me to dinner, because it was food for stories for several years. They'd take me to a nice dinner, and I'd, I'd regale them with stories afterwards. And you could hear the collective gasps across the room when I told them, yeah, we, we cut up six or seven brown boxes. <gasps> Your heart stopping and breathing stopped. You know? Yeah, they, they gasped every time. I, I'm one of my very good friends. I loaned a copy of, it was probably all second and third printings, and his wife threw it out. Oh, that one that's hurts worth, too. That's that worth hurts at least to hear. Four, that's worth at least four or five grand today. Yeah. Because it was almost pristine condition when I loaned it to him because he was going to learn the game and, you know, yeah, and it never panned out and I never got it back. And she ended uh, up throwing it away years later. Uh, that's, that's all I can do to not thank her very sarcastically every time <laughs> I see her. So everything's going on. You guys are you're, you're splitting off, you know, basic and, and advanced and, and all these great games are coming out. Was there I'm just curious about what the what was the atmosphere like around there? Was it, was it like crazy and exciting? Like you guys, cause you were just, just blazing new trails with everything that you guys were doing. Well, did you have I've, a sense of it then? <clears throat> yeah. I've often used the metaphor riding the rocket. Uh, we grabbed onto the, the fin of the rocket and took a ride that was unparalleled. Uh, and very exciting, very fun. Um, very frustrating in some regards. Um, we could not give away a historical game, no matter how incredibly good the design was. Um, I, I developed a game for TSR called uh, William the Conqueror 1066. Marvelous new game. Uh, first time they had combined anybody had combined minis with a board game. It was oh. all about facing. It was diceless, and it was a two-sided map that was basically oilcloth. So you couldn't ruin it if you spoiled a drink on it. You know, I mean, we did all these and we couldn't give it away because they didn't think that we could do anything but demons and dragons and, and sword fights. We, we could not sell. It was so long before um, Divine Right finally right, found sure. some traction. And that's only because it was medieval. And most of the people were using a medieval setting to extrapolate their D&D from. But they couldn't use 1060. They couldn't use the 11th century. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, they had to have yeah. the 14th. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very frustrating. I, I'm. I still think that's one of the more innovative game designs that that's been done. I didn't do it. I just developed it. I mean, it came in nearly perfect. Uh, over the transom, the guy that wrote it, it was nearly perfect when he when he got it. So I didn't do that much work on it, except you know, make it saleable and restructure the rules so that they were coherent and followed a, you know, logical pattern, stuff like that. Um, it was a pretty easy development job. I'll put it that way. And uh, we, we couldn't give it away. Couldn't give it away. And it was a brilliant game, but it wasn't, didn't have dragons and orcs in it. So we couldn't, we, we got, we got whitewashed. We got stereotyped as fantasy only. And Gary was a frustrated historical designer. I was a frustrated historical designer. Um, and, you know, and we just we couldn't give them away. 
Yeah, that's it's interesting too because you I know there was obviously some uh, some other games, but more RPGs, and, and maybe that's why because it was it was that style of game. But things I'm just thinking of things like Metamorphosis Alpha or Gamma World and and Boot Hill that you know had some success, but maybe it's probably you know it, it it was even though maybe a different genre, it was close to D and D, so maybe it that was helped those playing. Right. Yeah, it was it was a long time before TSR had a board game that they did well with uh, that wasn't Dungeon. Right. Dungeon was like D&D light to yeah. play with your kids and, you know, whatever. That was a horrible game to set up. Oh, my God. <laughs> pieces, too many pieces. Oh, my God. All those little chits. You had to yep. put one on every damn step. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it was still fun to play. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a copy um, it was much later that TSR bought Fight in the Skies from Mike Carr, renamed it as Dawn Patrol, and they did well with it then. But that's because they were an established company then that had done Divine Right and some some others that had broadened their base and broadened their credibility uh, uh, state. Um, they had some credibility. Uh, Fight in the Skies still is a great game. You know, when you stop and think that Mike Carr developed that when he was in high school. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, um, it's and, and I still I still love to play it. And, you know, my God, the game's 50 years old now. Yeah. So you uh, you resigned from TSR in 1980. Um, yep. What um, obviously get into as much or as little as you want. But what, what led to that decision? The company started turning into a shitstorm. The Bloom versus Gygax stuff that started. Right. Um, for a long time, there was a stock deadlock. And then I came in and I got a stock option. And now all of a sudden, Bloom's got so many shares, Gygax has got so many shares, and Tim's got the the balance, the difference. Not the rest of them, but I had enough to, and a deadlock. So I broke a lot of ties in Gary's favor. That was, those each time I did that, that was noted away by the Blooms. And so I was put in a position where uh, to stay would have been untenable and would have betrayed all my own principles. So I basically said goodbye. And I came to Cincinnati. That was in 80. I came here in March of 80. And I started Adventure Gaming Magazine with backing from the people at Ralph Partha. And uh, then I spun, spun it off on its own. And then Reaganomics hit. And the trickle down didn't trickle down. We lost a lot of small businesses during that period of time. And a large chunk of them were mom and pop hobby shops. I was getting bankruptcy notices every day in the mail. I was getting, you know, 17 cents on the dollar over six years for a settlement. Well, I, you know, I'm, eventually I spent enough of my own money. I said no more. So I got out of magazines altogether for a long time. And then I got lured back in by Jason Elliott and Gygax Magazine. And so I was a contributing editor and supervising it. I don't know. I was kind of like the senior editor, and I was also tasked with bringing in other good writers. And then The Widow had another uh, break with reality and um, basically spent a, 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 a huge amount of money trademarking Everything she could think of that could possibly be connected to gaming and the name Gygax. So she ran the magazine out of business. She ran Tower of Gygax out of existence at Gen Con. 
because unfortunately, Indiana is the only state in the union that she could do that. Indiana is the only state in the union that gives a widow rights to her husband's name in that way. The irony was she thought we, we she wasn't getting her cut of the pie. There was no pie. <laughs> yeah. We were doing it as a memoriam to Gary. Right, right. I don't know what Gen Con was charging. It wasn't us. There's about 12 of us DMs that got together and said, we're going to do this thing. And we did it. And it was great fun. And and it, it drew huge gr- crowds. I mean, we'd have eight people at the table and we'd have 30 around the walls waiting for their turn to get in when somebody died. That was the kind of crowds we drew. And she thought there was money there and killed it. She tried to kill Gary Khan, but I followed her on that one. <laughs> I went to uh, Jolly Blackburn at uh, Knights of the Dinner Table, who had already, in one of their comics, created a Gary Khan for Gary Jackson, okay, in there. Well, by publishing it, they had common law copyright to it. So I called Jolly, I told him what was going on. And so Kenzer Company gave Luke permission to use Gary Khan, and she couldn't do a damn thing about it. That's crazy. I, I did not, <clears throat> excuse me, I did not know that story. Um, well, the widow did a lot of silly, stupid things after Gary died. Immediately after Gary died, she got a hold of the trolls, Troll Lord Games, and told them to pull everything off the shelves. Now, if she'd been smart, she'd have called Troll Lord Games and said, Run another printing of everything. Gary just died, and they will sell like hotcakes. But yeah. she didn't. She pulled everything off. She went around to all the people that Gary collaborated with, demanding any work that they had worked on with him be given to her. And several of them said, yeah, when I get paid for it. You know, I mean, <laughs> I haven't been paid for this, so uh, no, it's still mine. And... um she alienated many more people that way. Um, I have spoken to several people in the industry that have the credentials to make this assessment. She suffers from some sort of reflected glory con- complex. She basks in the glory of the people she's around. She basks in the glory of Gary. Well, now he's gone. So she has nobody's glory to bask in. So she's trying to retain all this stuff. She's trademarked everything. She's basically killed the brand. Gary's sons can't use their own name in anything to do with gaming because she trademarked it. Now, she's being sued by Rob Koontz. And I think Rob's got a very, very good chance of winning. I would even go and testify, even though Rob and I aren't the best of friends, I would still go testify against her. And the only thing of value she owns is all those trademarks. So when she loses the lawsuit, she's going to have to give them all up. It's the only thing she owns of value. Your court will decide what they're worth and then how many she she has to forfeit or whatever to meet the demand. So I'm hoping, I'm rooting for Rob to win while I'm still alive. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to see him win. I want to see her get her, what she's got coming. I want to see her do something with the 200 and some thousand dollars she's sitting on that she's raised for the memorial that's never been erected. Yeah, that's that's you know, and again, I don't pretend to know everything that's that's going on, but that that one to me is always, 
I just wonder what's going on there because that, yeah, that money was raised and, and we're supposed to have a, a great memorial for Gary and, and nothing's come of it. Well, and it's also a 5013C and a 5013C in the state of Wisconsin is required to uh, file a certain set of type of papers every year. Now, I know this because I was involved with Fishing Has No Boundaries, which is a group that works with people with disabilities who is headquartered in Wisconsin. So we had to file these papers every year, where, what, where the money is, what we're doing with it. Right? She didn't file any papers at all for years. We don't even know if all the money's still there. She claims it is, but we don't know where she got the money to go buy, to pay all the legal fees to get all these trademarks. No, so someday we're finally going to peek in there and see what's left and figure out whether or not she's misused it. Yeah. I'm not saying she has, but if she hasn't, why the hell has she filed the paperwork to show it's still sitting there? At one point, she filed some paper, inco incomplete paperwork because I made an information request in, from the state and got it incomplete that said it was all sitting there earning no interest. $211,000 or $212,000 not earning a penny in interest. How stupid is that? I don't care if it's a half a percent. Yeah, something. Yeah. You don't just let your money sit there and let the bank use it, not without giving you something for it. But that's what you did. So anyway, that's a that's a side alley we just got down. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it's just unfortunate because, you know, money clouds things and, and perceived. Sometimes it's even just perceived value of things that that makes things so complicated. So it's unfortunate that, you know, the, the Gygax kids can't even use yeah. it and you know that's it's it's just a it's a sad situation <laughs> well she's she's an incredibly mean-spirited person incredibly mean-spirited i have no idea how she ended up hooked up with gary i have no idea i've heard i've heard tales from family members that have just raised the hair on the back of your neck of things the way she treated gary toward the end of his life no that's too bad that's sad yep. to hear yep well, right. let's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, positive note. <laughs> yeah. So now I, I want to talk about naval war, uh, at Avalon. Ah. So what, what yes. was that like? I mean, you, you were obviously a big Avalon Hill fan and played the historicals. What was it like to, to get to work on a project there? Well, I got to work on that when, when Avalon Hill bought it from, uh, I remember it was heritage games or Yakinto, whoever first put it out, Avalon Hill bought it. Now, Tom, Tom, uh, Shaw and I, had a, a, a good relationship. Tom was the president of Avalon Hill back in the late 70s and through the 80s. And uh, I was a big proponent of the chariot racing game, going around to various cons in the Midwest, running chariot games on behalf of Avalon Hill. So I was talking to Tom and he says, oh, we picked up a couple of games. You might be interested. And he told me what they were. I said, Naval War. Oh, I'm very interested. I said, uh, how would you like an entire set of optional rules that have been played for a year and a half in my basement? Job's yours. <laughs> so I got Naval War and all I did was clean up a few of the, uh, a, a few. They weren't rules. It was just poorly worded parts, you know, but then I added in all the optional rules in the back with kamikaze strikes. And um, this is all stuff. Naval War and nuclear war used to be our warm-up games. I, I would have four or five guys, guys from Ralph Partha and, and friends. We, we used to play every week down here in my basement. And while we're waiting for those last one or two guys to show up, we play 
nuclear war or we'd play naval war. And uh, so we'd worked up all these optional rules that we'd, we'd adopted. We had uh, kamikaze strikes, which would hit on more pips, but you had to wait another turn before you could do it again. You know, and we'd, we'd modified this. We had fleet rules where you could share. You, you couldn't shoot that turn, but you could swap bullets back and forth. So he had 12s and you needed 12s and you had a 14. And he, so, okay, we aren't going to shoot this turn. But we, we, all that stuff in the back, basically, we had already been playing for a year and a half. So it was just staple it on. Didn't change the deck. Didn't change the boats. Didn't change any major rules. Just stick it on. Got to put my name on it. All my buddies are listed as the playtesters in the back of the book. They all got a little ego rush out of seeing their name there, you know. And I think I even got them all a copy. You know, they all got, we all got a free copy of it. So uh, that was just something I, like I said, I was friends with Tom Shaw. I was already running Circus Maximus games um, around the Midwest. In fact, um, the, when he presented me with that idea it was just a few months after he'd been here. We used to have some pretty damn good cons here in Cincinnati. Uh, we would draw three, four thousand people back in the early eighties. You know, and that's those are those are damn respectable numbers. And he came one year and I was running the circus and we had such a game going. Um, it was the last game running. We had people like twelve deep, literally twelve deep around the table when he happened to walk by. Holy cow, he's pretty impressed. That was his <laughs> game that I was running. So uh yeah, one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up in naval war, and that's uh, just another little uh, little notation on my curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> now I know in the uh, early 2000s you you took up teaching, uh, but still dabbled a little bit with uh, with gaming things, Eldritch Enterprises. Uh, wh what are some of the well, other that, things? that came after that came after the teaching. Um, Eldritch, I came back into the industry in 2006. I don't think we started Eldritch till 12, but in the meantime. I had gone back to Gen Con. I'd been invited back to Gen Con by Frank Menser to be a guest auctioneer. And uh, that was, uh, that's a whole nother tale I'll relate some other time when you have more time. Um, but uh, I, I came back in then. I had been playing a computer game called Age of Wonders. That, in my estimation of all the games I have tried, I don't play first person shooters. But that game, to me, has more of a feel of D&D &D than any other turn-based strategy game out there. You look at them as heroes. I don't look at them as having units. I look at them as having a gang. They're going to have eight guys in their gang. All right. The game says it's a unit of, of trolls. Nah, it's a troll. You know, <laughs> that's the way I play it. And you, you do magical research. You extend your influence through your heroes. They can cast spells for you. It's very D&D-ish. And um, I was playing online with guys from all around the world. And the game had a tremendous fan base, kept it alive as an orphan for years, making their own mods, making their own patches, tremendously active. And so I got involved writing what they called maps, we would call scenarios, and I got some pretty good response from a few I did. And I mainly did it because they had a marvelous uh, map editor that let you paint. Oh, I was known for my gorgeous maps. I'd spend hours just 
painting my maps than I designed the adventure. But I no, it had to had to look good. And so uh, I realized that I still had some creative juices when a guy in Australia was going to do um, an expansion on the big mod that had been done. It was called the Dwigs mod. This guy named Dwigs had done it, and he completely uh, he, he took the game to the next level. And so this guy was going to update it for the light, latest patch, and he wanted to create some new races. Would I be interested? I said, I don't know. Send me some sprites. So he sent me six sprites, and I saw them, and I knew who they were, and I knew what they could do, and you know, all within terms of the game's mechanics. And about an hour later, I sent them back to him, all written out. Because I, I had like a 120 word limit on each of the descriptions. And he goes, how? I said, I don't know. I saw the sprites. I knew who they were. I ended up doing about 140, 150 new creatures, uh, heroes, bad guys, whatever. I just found out that I had a lot of untapped creative juices. I'd always been an editor, not a creator. And so that made me decide, well, shit, I can write adventures again. So I've written about about a dozen adventures, I guess, altogether between what what I did. Well, some of what I did with Eldritch I'd already done under my own imprint of uh, Celtic Studios. Um, but I found out that, yeah, I, I got some creative juices. I even got uh, conned into writing a short story and uh, for our anthology. And um, I don't think they were just my friends trying to suck up. But I had a lot of people tell me that they thought mine was one of the better stories in the anthology. And I only had one in the whole book. But it was I was very proud of it. Um, I um, just. The bug was there, so, you know, and I'm 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 still doing it. I'm uh, reworking one now that Lloyd Metcalf and I are going to kickstart this fall. Right now, I'm having trouble. I can't type. Uh, I'm having surgery on my right shoulder a week from tonight today um i can't type for more than about 10 minutes because i can't hold my arm out so i'm having shoulder surgery and hopefully when that gets all done in the meantime i'm trying to teach it to understand my speech i'm having trouble with that too i thought i I was pretty well spoken but apparently i'm beyond uh uh, i don't know anyway we're working on that so i'm still writing um i'm you know i i still the juices are still there um I'm giving a, a a talk at a college about game design, uh, which is you know gratifying and that will be fun. Um, just got done doing one with a high school group of game designers. Um, told them Kickstarter, Kickstarter, Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All you got to have is a good video and a decent game. Set your sights low enough, and when you exceed, okay, you make more money. But then if you don't fulfill, you're doomed. You know, so <laughs> we went through the whole thing. Um, but I, I don't I was teaching and I, I was enjoying it, but I, I didn't teach for long. And then I ended up retiring um, because I was of an age and I could. And um, I, I, I still play. I have a circle of friends that we've not met since March. Uh, we used to play every other Wednesday over here on my pool table. And uh, we haven't met since March. We do play Scythe online. That is one game I play a lot online is Scythe. Uh, I think that's a brilliant game. And um, we we do play that. 
probably once a week, at least at least a couple of us. Sometimes we get the whole gang together. Um, what else? Oh, I just was asked to write the introduction to the uh, second edition of Escape from Dulcie. Oh, okay. And for those of you who are listening to this who don't know about that game, it's D-U-L-C-E, like the the, the uh, caramel, <laughs> milk caramel. <laughs> but it's uh, it's role playing in a box. It absolutely is role playing in a box with a pre-gen. But you get more powerful. You can take more. You, you advance. You can take more hits. Yeah, it's it's role playing. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it in a box. And several years ago, if you told me somebody could do that, I told you you were full of hot air. But then they sent me the game. And I slogged my way through the rules. And then we it took us three or four sessions to play the, the long campaign. And uh, we loved it. In fact, uh, Dulce, I think, is one of the games I did it uh, in Maine last year. Oh, at Applecon, yeah. Yeah, I think I did Dulce. And I, and I, I know I did uh, um, Scythe. Yeah, I didn't because they the cows sent a, a copy of Dulce and then we ended up giving it away to somebody at the end. Um, it is role playing in a box. They've got a um, more. They've done expansions. They've got more expansions coming out. They've got one about. Uh, uh, oh, I don't know if I can talk about it, but ooh, it looks good. <laughs> and anybody anybody that's into Star Wars is going to see an immediate physical resemblance to a big aspect of the Star Wars uh, saga, um, but it's not, they're not stealing anything. They got a new Kickstarter coming out for a second publishing or second edition, and they asked me to write the intro. And I was very pleased to do it and very glad to do it. And uh, basically that's what I said. Uh, I didn't believe it could be done. And then these guys showed you can do it. It's And tell them it, it really is role-playing. Anybody who's been to a convention, been handed a pre-gen, is gonna feel right at home with this. The bad guys are variable, all right? You don't know which bad guys you're gonna find run up against in any given situation. Of the class of bad guys or type, you don't know which ones you're gonna run into because there's like six or seven of everything. And maybe there's just three of them, but you don't know which three you're gonna run into because that's all random. Each of the bad guys does things differently. So this one might go for the guy with the highest armor and this one might go for the guy that's in the worst shape yeah and that's what they do it's written on their you know their counter that's what they do and so it has infinite replayability sounds like solo too solo play probably a possibility might be i i don't know where 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 their heads are in in that but it would seem to me that it might lend it to certainly the 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 the, these uh, smaller scenarios the big one where you guys uh, escape from the prison on the ground floor and get seven levels up to escape. No, <laughs> no one's going to play that solo. <laughs> Not possible. <laughs> You'd have to be a cheater of Trumpian <laughs> proportions <laughs> to even think of winning that one solo. But there are several of the smaller ones that you could probably could. And if, if the cows get around to it, they'll probably make one or two just you know, to, to fill out their uh, portfolio. Sure. So, well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, I did want to touch on something. I got um, all night, so. <laughs> hey, man, we're all, you know, it's been March since I've done any socializing. <laughs> all right. Well, let me hit on two things then. There, There's um, just from what you're talking about with uh, with Age of Wonders uh, and 
I mean, all of those games, whether it's you know online versions of of D and D like Neverwinter or um, or other RPGs or, or uh, they all, all owe their very existence that, and their structure and their framework to D and D. Yeah, yep. isn't that crazy? And it's kind of probably feels like coming full circle for you because you were there in the early days of TSR, and then now you're you know you're you're interacting with you know the video game things. And well, there's one word that I'm going to talk about uh, tomorrow night in my next uh, curmudgeon, and that's the word experience. Okay, the word experience is integral to what games are today because it was that guy in Minnesota who attributed experience to that green knight that had lived through the last three battles. Therefore, he must be a superhero. He's experienced. I play, I play, um, oh God, what's it called? Train Station. I started playing that when I was in chemotherapy four years ago because it made me get up every 45 minutes, walk across the basement and recycle my train. So it made me get up and work and, and move when I didn't want to. And now, of course, money is meaningless. I have so many trillions of dollars that coins are meaningless. But it's all about experience. Everything you do, you're an experience to go up a level. Well, experience has become a catch-all. What is the experience of successfully completing uh, 500 diesel train runs compared to successfully negotiating three levels of a dungeon and getting out alive? But it's the same thing. It's the accrual of doing that assumes now you're better at doing it. Lives, hit points, experience, levels, all of those four, the four underpinnings of video games, all come straight out of D&D. Janelle Jacques went from being a and er and doing the magazine she did and everything right into the video game hobby. And there, there are several people that are more known for their RPGs and their, their tabletop stuff that worked for at least a time in the video game hobby. And that's why the video games look like ours. No secret. Can't, you can't patent or trademark a system. Can't be done. It's not allowed. So you can't stop them from, calling lives, hearts, and experience points. You know, you, you, if TS, even if TSR had a desire to, they couldn't have stopped that. And yet every, every first-person game, every MMO, every one of those owes itself, owes its structure and its skeleton to D&D. Lives, hits, experience, levels, every one of them. Couldn't exist yeah. without those four things. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted to talk about too, and we touched on it again, was um, you know, you and I we we met briefly at AppleCon up in Maine last fall, and unfortunately, AppleCon, like so many conventions this year, uh, I'm actually I'm drinking drinking out of an Adepticon pint glass here. Adepticon was canceled. I normally go to DragonCon in Atlanta, which would have been this past weekend. That was canceled. So, I mean, I, I know... I normally for, go to five a year. <laughs> well, that's what that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you, you must be missing that experience. The only one I went to this friends. year was TotalCon in February in Boston. Yeah. GaryCon got canceled. Um, Texas got canceled. Game Holes canceled. Yeah. 
AppleCon's canceled. Uh, the, there was another one that it, I, they were uh, trying to see if they could get me to come to it this year. And <laughs> they're, I was just having a conversation with a couple of guys in the business today about what this COVID is going to do to the mom and pop shops that can no longer have the game room filled with people on Saturday, Friday and Saturday night. And a lot of those mom and pop shops made a lot of their money on the concessions. Just like the movie people do, they made more money on the pop and the munchies than they did on what was probably sold that night. And there's already little companies going out of business because they would be at a con every weekend somewhere selling retail. And that's how they stayed afloat. And now they're going belly up because they don't have that. So this is killing a lot of aspects of our hobby. Now everybody's going virtual. What's that going to do to the brick and mortar cons? I did virtual Gary Con. Uh, I, I did. Uh, I've done a couple other virtual cons. I, I'm going to do one later. I'm doing a game. Texas North Texas Con has a permanent site now where they run games all the time. Not every day, but when you know. When, and so they're you want to play in a game? Go look at their site, and you know maybe you can find a game to play in. Um, Frog God's doing their own stuff now. Uh, Goodman Games is doing their own stuff virtually. Um, game Hole's going virtual. I'm going to run games virtually for Game Hole. How many people are going to get out of the habit of going to the hassle, through the hassle of going to a con? Right, right. Because it's, it's, it's a big commitment of time and packing and getting there and whatever. And if they decide, well, hey, online's good enough, some of the, you know, and it's it's not the the ones that I've mentioned. Those are all established cons. It's the small cons that maybe only draw 300 people from 75 miles around, but those are the bedrock of the industry. Right, right, sure. And you know, and, and those small cons, they'd be lucky to get any manufacturer there uh, to to do it, but they they all have the local game store there selling everything he can sell. Because I've seen that here at CincyCon. You know, the local stores have come and put out a wide array of their, their product line and, and, you know, hope to catch sales there. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of what it's going to do to the brick and mortar cons. Uh, just like I'm afraid of what it's going to do to some of the mom and pop shops that, that were already struggling, you know, and they weren't making their profit margin selling paint and, and, and RPG games. They were making their margin selling pop and candy bars. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, you know, nothing wrong with that. You know, you're in business to make money. And, it, you know, if you got to sell a bunch of pop to make money on Saturday nights, okay. Saturday was a profit. You know, it's a plus. Um, so I'm, I'm real worried. I'm real worried. If this thing lingers on into, say, next summer, we're going to see a lot of small cons not coming back. Because they simply don't have the finances, you know. They TSR lived and published on what we got in advanced registrations for Gen Con. We would get so many thousands of dollars in advanced registrations for Gen Con that that's how we paid for whatever we printed to sell at that year's Gen Con. It was on the float. Now the float doesn't exist anymore. The float was when checks took three days to, to process or four, 
Those three or four days, that money's floating. It's nowhere. We lived on the float. You gave us the money, but we don't have to spend it yet. (laughs) So we're going to use it for something else because we know we'll have, you know, and you can't do that anymore with with electronic banking. That there is no float. Just like I can't write a check and know it's going to be six days before it clears. And that means I got five to get money in to cover it. Doesn't work. So uh, I I'm, I worry. I worry about smoke. Now, now Lloyd's con, he actually made a profit. Minute, but a profit. That puts him in such a tiny sliver of cons <laughs> that managed to do that. The very They didn't lose their asses the first year. The ones that are borderline, 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 I don't think we're going to see as many of them making the effort. If they can't, if they can't get the crowd, there's no point. Right, right. If you can't, if you're if you're used to having 450 attendees and you're only going to get 200, you're not going to make your nut. You're going to lose, and that'll be the last time you do it. So that that remains to be that remains to shake out. I'd like to think that because gamers are normally pretty intelligent people to begin with, that if we did have a con, we'd all stay six feet apart, we'd all be wearing our masks, and we wouldn't be infecting each other because we're the smart ones. <laughs> right. Right. That's the theory, anyway. Yeah. We like to tell ourselves that we're the smart. <laughs> we're educated. <laughs> can't be a dummy and play war games, because you can't. <laughs> can't can't be a dummy and play war games. Dummies don't play. <laughs> Well, Tim, this has been so much fun for me. I'm going to let you go for tonight. We'll put a pin in some stuff, and uh, and I'll have you back because uh, I've I've had just such a a great time talking to you. How can people uh, how can people find what's going on with you? I know you do curmudgeon in the cellar and things like that. How can how can people keep up with you? Curmudgeon in the cellar is a weekly thing on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. Uh, my wife says I share way too much information. <laughs> but I've always been an open kind of guy. I mean. The surgery and all that, you know, she already oh, shouldn't have told anybody. Well, yeah, it's what's going on, you know. Um, I really don't, I really don't believe that I'd have pulled through the cancer if I hadn't had thousands of strangers sending me good vibes, whatever form you care to put those in, prayers, good wishes, whatever. I, I am fully convinced that that that's a big part of getting better is knowing that other people are praying for you, saying good things, you know. Um, I made a joke <laughs> after it was all over. And, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for for all that. I mean, I, I was prayed for in St. Patrick's Cathedral. I was prayed for in Westminster Abbey. I've been prayed for in, in um, um, cathedrals, small churches, mosques, synagogues. And, and it's very humbling. Uh, very humbling to to realize that and um, that that's it's a great it was a great source of strength for me and so I you know I said hey, I'm going to have my shoulder operated on well you shouldn't have said that well why not you know um, people because I believe something was on my side I'm not terribly religious certainly not in in many of the normal standard fashions. I was baptized a Catholic and fought against it all my life. And for a while, I became a deluded Catholic. That's Episcopalian. <laughs> and uh, I, I, we were once having a picnic or a, 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 a pancake breakfast at our at our church. 
back when I was active in the church <laughs> before our uh, congregation broke dissolved. And we had the bishop out and he was eating pancakes. And I asked him if he knew how um, how uh, Episcopalians were made. <laughs> he looked at me, no, and he's chewing away. I said, well, high church, take one part Catholic, one part water. Low church, three parts, three parts water, one part Catholic. I thought he was going to blow chunks of pancakes <laughs> out of his nose. And I, I waited till he had a mouthful before I gave him the punchline <laughs> on purpose. And uh, so, you know, I have a somewhat, I have a somewhat unique, uh, anyway, I, I do believe that there was some kind of uh, something out there that was working on my behalf. And uh, I, I was, I'm very, I'm, to this day, I'm very grateful for it. I don't belittle it. I don't mock it. I don't scorn it. I don't pretend to understand it. But uh, I, I believe that, you know, it's very important when, when you're ill to know that people care about you and that they're, they're rooting for you. I, I, that's a, that's a huge huge uh boost to your uh, confidence and your sense of well-being and so uh that's why i sometimes share too much yeah well i, I but i'm on facebook you. i'm on youtube that's really the only places you find me then i'm on the odd podcast google me <laughs> you'll find me i, I do Anybody say, hey, you want to do a podcast? Sure. In your case, I couldn't remember who it was. I had it written down, 8 o'clock podcast, but I didn't write down who it was. That's why I put the thing on Facebook. Yeah, I'm doing one. I just don't remember who with. Okay. Yeah, I th that tickled me. I saw that on Facebook last night. <laughs> it's like, I'm doing a podcast tomorrow, but I don't know who it was. Like, That's me, Tim. Don't don't worry about it. Well, well yeah, fine. you know, I figured, you know, by yesterday, I figured by that time somebody would have reminded me of giving me a link or something. Not that I was panicking. I, you know, I, I was going to be here. If you didn't show up, okay, I'll play another size. <laughs> I play some more poker, whatever. Uh, yeah, no, I thought that was funny. Um, I bought the Ogre game through Steam simply because it's great cartoons. Oh yeah, the are, you set so up that's a based on the giant box fun. game. Yeah, yeah, and just yeah, well, yeah, I love ogre. I've got the yeah. the four hundred plastic minis and the whole <laughs> yeah. the whole nine. Yeah, the thing that covers the pool table. You can play ogre on a pool table. Now ogre started as a pocket game. The <laughs> yeah. board was about this big, yeah. and you played at lunch twice. <laughs> Each got to be the ogre because the ogre always won, but you still played. And so, yeah, I've got Ogre, and I, 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 I still play Ogre once in a while. And then I saw it online, and I said, oh, this is great. Because now I just put on the tutorials and watch the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of real-time strategy games that I use for the same thing. I just set up, a, set up a conflict and turn it on and watch it for military cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, you know, depending upon where you're at. <laughs> right, right, right. Where your head's at, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, Watching all those Romans marching in to fight the barbarians can be quite fun. <laughs> Just watch it. I go to YouTube and watch all those silly things like uh, 20 tigers against 100 T-34s. I watch it for the cartoons. <laughs> That's just cartoons as far as I'm concerned. You know the 20 tigers are going to take out the 100 T-34s. You just want to see how and how many tigers will be left at the end. You know what's going to happen. So, yeah, I, I like um, I like um, game cartoons. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And on that note, we should probably end before. We get <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, again, I, I thank you so much for your time, Tim, and I, I wish you the best with your surgery and everything else that, that you've got going on, and I hope very much that we can see each other in person at a convention really soon. Yeah, I'd like to be at any convention really soon. I'll tell you, I, yeah. I, we need to get back to that. We, we definitely need to get back to that. And if you want to talk some more sometime, just get a hold of me. Awesome. I, I like to talk. <laughs> well, I'm sure people like to listen to your story. So well, I, once, once, fun. once in the past, uh, I for several years I had a nickname, Talking Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> I like to talk. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, any knowledge that I can share, you know, I I realize I have a burden now. I'm this. I'm the last surviving member of the original TSR crew. Everybody else is dead. That's true. So it's up to me and my memories to set the record straight. Yeah. Well, we, we appreciate it. Well, you know, I just I like to stomp on fools that are wrong. <laughs> wow. well, I told the guy today he didn't have any idea what he was talking about when he said that uh, Chainmail's influence on D&D was over overstressed. I said there wouldn't have been a Bronstein without the fantasy supplement. No Bronstein, no D&D. Duh. <laughs> well, how stupid are you? What country do you live in? <laughs> That's what kills me. The experts on Facebook who think they know how the how the game came about and, and they don't have a clue. And hey, it's not like I'm hiding under a basket somewhere. I've been available to answer questions ever since I came back into the industry. I've been doing it. In fact, I've got a 134 page thread that's now locked on Dragon Dragon's Foot. Dragon's Foot, yeah. You know, there's 130. I got a book basically. <laughs> Right. Over there, and I got a friend that's working on it, and we're going to make it into a book, hopefully, before I croak. So, you know, um, I'm I'm always there. I, I ask, answer questions. Go to Facebook. And if it's a good enough question, I'll save it for my uh, podcast, and I'll answer it there because that's all I do is I just take the comments from the week previous and respond to them. See to the pants. About ten o'clock. <laughs> About 10 o'clock, I cut and paste them all, put them on however many sheets of paper it takes. I look at them while I'm cutting and pasting them. I set them aside. And then I, get, I go get baked. And then a couple <laughs> hours later, I sit down and I just wing it. And see the, with the, you know, I, I've been thinking about what the questions off and on, you know, sure. micro, micro thoughts here and there, you know, uh, kind of. But I don't prepare an outline or anything like that. I just go with the flow. Nice. Well, that's. I mean, hey, that works. That that's. I, I, it's more genuine too because you're you're just you're talking from the heart. Well, it's like a thirty minute monologue. <laughs> <laughs> it's a soliloquy, actually. It's what it is. It's a soliloquy for thirty thirty five minutes. Casey, I, I get windy and go forty. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, I, again, I, I thank you so much, Tim. And, All right, uh, curmudgeon in the cellar. YouTube. Good night. <laughs>